0: Hey, brother, there's a endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky... Welcome to the Reform Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? (laughs) I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Alright everybody, so this week we had some technical difficulties and uh, we lost the audio from our recordings, but fear not, uh, a couple years ago I gave some lectures in systematic theology at a church that my wife and I were a part of, and uh, the the content maps up pretty well. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, let that fly, I'm going to put it out in two parts, so uh, that should get us right in line where we need to be for next week's episode. Thanks. So tonight uh, we have moved out of kind of the most difficult, technical, philosophical kinds of theology that we're going to do. So the doctrine of the Trinity and the, the persons of the Trinity is the most, the most philosophical and the least exegetical uh, in terms of the way that we're going to approach it. So from here out we're going to be dealing with probably more concrete kinds of uh, topics. And more application. But I want to re-emphasize, and I I think Horton does a great job of this, it's absolutely vital that we understand the, the nature of the Trinity and who the Divine Persons are and how they're unified. Because as you started to see in this chapter, the Divine Persons and their action towards creation always takes that Trinitarian format. It's always the Father acts... The Son obtains whatever the Father's desire is, and the Spirit applies that in in creation. So, in salvation, as I've said before, the Father chooses who will be saved and how they will be saved. The Son comes and obtains that salvation, and then the Spirit applies that in creation. The Father creates the Son uh, through the Son, and then the Holy Spirit orders that creation. So, it's important that we remember that as we keep going. Uh, if you have questions about that, if something's not clear, or as you're reading, if something doesn't seem to line up with that, please bring it up in class. We had some really good discussion last week, um, and I think thats it always takes a little while for a class to kind of gel and get to that point where they feel comfortable with that. Um, and I think that we've gotten there, so I'm excited about that. So I'm going to go ahead and open us in prayer, and then uh, we will go ahead and jump right in. Father, you are a God who creates. You bring life where there was no life. And uh, tonight, we, as we look at your creation, and we talk about different ideas of how you created and what the text you've given us means, I pray that you would humble us and bring life into us tonight. Uh, we stand as uh, believers in your Son. We trust Him to save us, and we are filled with your Spirit. So as we come to your uh, Bible tonight, and as we discuss... Various aspects of creation help us to see the things you wish us to see and help us to forget the things that we shouldn't. Uh, we love you, God, and we pray in the name of your Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So tonight we are talking about creation. Um, so hopefully you had a chance to read the text. Um, Horton does a really good job of kind of just going through all of the basics of creation. And he has a really good section on providence in there. Providence is one of those topics that's difficult to really know where to place it. So for now, we're not going to talk about it too much as we're doing the creation chapter. Uh, We'll probably touch on it a little bit when we get to salvation and election, which is coming up in a couple weeks. So we're going to go ahead and jump straight into creation ex nihilo. Uh, So ex nihilo is just a Latin phrase that means out of nothing or from nothing. That ex is the same that we get uh, the word exodus. So it's, it's the coming out of Egypt or the escape from Egypt. Escape is another word that has that. Um, and then nihilo is where we get like nihilism or um, annihilation, that kind of language. And this indicates the specific, uh, specifically that God created all things that it are created without the use of previously existing matter. So in, in almost every other uh, religion, and, and as far as I know, every religion that came before Christianity, um, and so, in many ways even including Judaism, um, it wasn't very concrete in Judaism, this, this part of it. This was really a Christian development. Most of the time, the creation of the world and the universe was from some sort of pre-existing matter. So sometimes it was... Uh, a battle between the gods and humans were created out of drops of blood that fell to the earth. Um, even in Greek mythology, you have the, the uh, Greek god Chaos uh, was he was he always existed, but he created the world kind of out of parts of himself. Created, he took parts of himself, and then it became ordered and, and orderly. So Christianity is really one of the unique religions in the world um, that has a creation out of nothing. So it's not as though God shaped things that existed or reshaped things that existed. He simply spoke and called it into being. It's also important there are some strands of, uh, some strands of thought that consider themselves Christian that I would call sub-Christian. Um, would say that God does in some sense create out of his being thing called Christian panentheism, where the creation is so intimately linked with the very nature of who God is that it's a necessary thing. So God had to create, otherwise he was incomplete somehow. Um, I would reject that flat out. Um, So as opposed to that, God the Father created simply by speaking through his word or through his Son. And then ordered that creation by means of the Spirit. And we see that right in the beginning of Genesis 1. We have, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We'll go through the text specifically. But then it says, uh, he said, let there be light. And then there's also that section where it says, the Spirit was hovering over the waters. So we see all three persons of the Trinity in there that God creates. The Son is the the context and the instrument by which God creates. And then the Spirit orders that creation. He structures it. So when we see God saying, let there be light, and then there was light, it's actually the Spirit that is sort of bringing that effect about in creation. So uh, we're going to spend a little bit more time actually going through the text. Now, I call this exegesis. It's not formally exegesis because there's all sorts of other steps that would be involved if we were doing an actual exegesis of the text. But we're going to go through the text in some detail and just step through the account. And then we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the tensions between Genesis 1 and 2, um, sort of uh, from a kind of apologetic value, how some of those tensions can be resolved. Uh, And then we'll talk about some other issues as well. So we see in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. Now, when we read this as uh, 21st century... Uh, readers, we tend to think of this as, oh, the heavens and the earth. We think of two separate things that God created. This is actually a form of speech called a merism. And what that means is it's, it's when we speak of either parts of something to refer to the whole, or most often we refer to the extreme ends of a spectrum. So we might say, I searched high and low. Or uh, I've been everywhere from here to there. Those are both examples of merisms. What I mean when I say I've been everywhere from here to there is I mean I've been here, and I've been there, and I've been in every place in between there. When I search high and low, I'm searching from high to low. So there's other examples of that. Um, The children's song, Head, Shoulders, Knees, and Toes is kind of an example of that. You know, you do head, shoulders, knees, and toes, but it's a game to kind of talk about all the parts of the body. It's probably not intended to refer to the heavens or the earths as specific things, but we should read it as saying, In the beginning, God created all things, including material and immaterial things. Um, We tend to think of heaven as the place that God lives, and the problem with that is that God created the heavens, so there must have been a time where God wasn't in heaven because heaven didn't exist. So the heavens, as we'll see, refers to kind of the sky and the things above, and then the earth refers to the things below. Heaven also tends to refer to kind of immaterial things. The earth refers to kind of more material things. After God creates the heavens and the earth, or the earth there's an interesting statement that the spirit hovers over the waters. Um, to be honest with you, scholars don't know exactly what to do with this because it doesn't say anything about waters being created. So we don't know exactly what they're talking about. But the phrase waters seems to indicate the original state of created things before they became structured. So water in uh, ancient Near Eastern context, which Israel was an ancient Near Eastern uh, culture, water tended to be representative of chaos and unstructured things. If you think about how water works, it's actually pretty apt. If I had somehow had a handful of water and I let it go, it just goes everywhere. There's nothing binding it. It just escapes. Um, it fills, you know, it fills a cup, and it takes the shape of the cup. But as soon as you take the cup, it just goes. So it's inherently chaotic and unstructured. So why not say a gas, or uh, you know, that was just the gas. that was just the way it did that's just the way that they did it. Um, the idea of a gas probably wasn't something that they really thought about back then. Because if you think about a gas, we don't see it really. We don't think about it. Uh, it's only once we started to understand physics on a more technical level that gas really you know, made sense. Uh, there are also some kind of religious things from other cultures that get borrowed linguistically. So chaos and the, the chaos monsters of the sea are things that the Hebrew poetry especially appropriated. So you read about Leviathan and Behemoth and Rahab and all of these kinds of sea monsters that chaotic aspect of um, the sea and the fear of sea, which is something really, really common in ancient cultures, led chaos and water to be associated with each other. Does that have so, anything to do with why they say there will be no sea in heaven? Probably. Yeah, yeah. it's a way to say that it's, a, it's probably a way for John to explain that heaven will be stable and secure, mm-hmm. and there will be no chaos. We can talk about it in a little bit, but that gives us a whole new understanding of what's going on in the flood and what the promise never to destroy the earth with the waters actually means. Um, so then the spirit comes into the context of the waters and it uh, hovers over the water. And the language of hover here is the same language that would be used to speak of a like a mother bird that hovers or broods over her nest and it has to do with bringing life and protecting and structuring and giving order so the the spirit comes so when the when god the father says let there be whatever it's the spirit who brings about that intent in creation so there are different sort of schemas for how people will read this text and bring it about the way that i would read it excuse me is that god creates the heavens and the earth and it's formless and without void and the spirit is hovering over the water And then that's a summary statement. As the Spirit hovers over the water, the other stuff unfolds. So God says, let there be light, and the Spirit hovering over the waters is descriptive of everything that happens after that. It's not like the Spirit is hovering over the waters, and then we see in the next that the waters are separated, and there's different things that happen, and then the Spirit's not hovering over the waters. The Spirit is still hovering over the waters. The Spirit is what keeps the world from flying off into chaos as we speak. The fact that the atoms in my body don't fly off, you know, repel each other and I disintegrate, that's the Holy Spirit maintaining structure in the world. And then we see this sequence uh, where it says, Then God said, the remainder of creation takes the form of God acting toward the created universe through his Son, who mediates the Father's action in the Spirit. So God speaks a given command to creation. That, that speech is... Impacts creation and then is mediated and organized by the or by the Spirit. What we see next is that creation uh, unfolds in six sections. We're all familiar with the six sections. We won't talk about it too much unless there's a huge interest. Um, but you'll see certain parts of the church um, acting under various kinds of pressures from primarily from outside of the church, to try to try to say that the text is intending to say something other than six 24-hour periods. Now, I'm not saying that the world is 10,000 years old. I'm not saying the world is not 10,000 years old. We can talk about my pers- position if we want. But um, when we talk about whether something is literal or figurative, there's different ways that things can be literal and figurative. So I could say something, I could engage a metaphor that's a literal concrete metaphor. When I say, this chair is light as a feather, that's a literal and concrete metaphor. Because I'm saying, this chair is in fact light, and in some way it's light like a feather. Now, when I use a metaphor that doesn't uh, engage that actual, real description, that's a more abstract metaphor. So there's concrete metaphors that actually describe the way some things are. And then there's abstract metaphors that don't. So it's possible that the six 24-hour periods are are metaphors. But the metaphor only takes form if we understand it as actual 24-hour periods. So it's what you see is some people want to say, well, the word yom doesn't have to mean 24 hours. And that's true. Even in Genesis 1, there are places where yom means something other than 24 hours. However it's very clear that the author was intending to present you with six 24-hour periods. What those 24-hour periods represent is what needs to be debated. But it's not, I don't think it's defensible to just say, well, what they really meant was millions of years. It's six six periods of millions of years, and the author knew that. It just doesn't work. So, um, as I said, it could either mean that it's a concrete literal statement, meaning that it's presented as a historical event that took six actual literal sequential 24-hour days or it could be a concrete figurative statement meaning that it's it's a metaphor and the like a rock portion of it is like six 24-hour sequential periods Um, we don't know exactly what that means Um, and i don't think that just reading genesis is going to give us the answer we have to look at the rest of scripture we have to understand various things For the record, I'm a young earth creationist. I believe that the world is not millions of years old, and I think that uh, the world was created in six 24-hour periods. I'm, this isn't my area of specialty. I could be convinced otherwise, but that's where I am right now. Um, I don't think that you are saved or not saved because you believe in six 24-hour periods or not. Um, It does have implications for parts of our theology, and we'll talk about that when we get to to the salvation section. but this, I don't think, I don't think is a, a make-it-or-break-it kind of situation. As I've said before, this is the kind of thing that if you get it wrong, you're a Christian who's wrong. Where if you get the Trinity wrong, you're not a Christian. Um, so there's a literary structure that we see. The first sequence, which is uh, days one, two, and part of three. The first sequence involves creating and organizing kind of habitats or context for things to exist in the first day light is created. Now it's not, uh, we don't seem to have a a light source, we don't seem to have light existing in particular places, it's just light exists. There are some places where there are light and there seems to be some places where there's darkness and they seem to be tied into some kind of sequence because he says the light is called day and the darkness is called night. At this point, darkness is not seen as anything inherently bad anything evil or anything like that it, it's just the absence of light uh, and then we see on day two the universe is separated from the lower waters which have no name they're just called the lower waters uh, and then the upper waters which also have no name now the, the Bible talks about a firmament or an expanse you might hear it called a um, called a, a vault the Hebrew word is the same as uh, what you would put over your over your sleeping area so it's like a canopy the image is that there's some sort of physical kind of membrane that is put in between the he- the upper waters and the lower waters that make them different and that membrane or that gap whatever you want to call it is called the heavens or the skies it's the same word sky and heavens same word we probably shouldn't think of this as we would come later to use the term heaven to represent kind of this the non-physical um, dwelling place of the Lord kind of language. This is a physical thing that exists in reality. It probably, if you could fly high enough, you, could, you would bump into it kind of thing. The lower waters on day three are then separated. They're gathered into sections that are called the seas or the oceans. That's the same word in, in um, Hebrew. So is the word lake. It was just a large body of water that generally we're afraid of is kind of the idea. And then uh, the separated areas now have caused dry land to appear, which is called earth or the earth or the land or something like that. So that's kind of the sequence that God creates this habitat. It's still basically empty, but it's no longer uh, formless. So we had formless and void, and now we just have void. It's basically empty. What we see then is the second sequence involves populating these habitats. So on day three, the second part of day three, the earth brings forth vegetation. So Horton had this really insightful thing that I don't run into very, other, very, uh, very many other places, that there are times when God simply speaks, and it is, and then there are times where God seems to use the natural processes that he's built into creation. So in some instances, let there be light, and there was light, and in some instances, let the earth bring forth vegetation. Neither one of those are any more or less God's actions. That's very important for us to remember. Um, There are different kinds of thoughts. One of them is called deism, which is basically God winds up this clock and pushes go, and then the earth just spins on according to these natural laws. This is what the vast majority of the early uh, American uh, patriots believed. Um, It was kind of a philosophical system kind of rooted in Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Um, very, very associated with the political systems. But this is not so. So God is directly involved in bringing forth vegetation, but he does so providentially by means of just that's the way he created it. I love Horton's phrase, that's the way he worded it to be. He intended it to be that way when he spoke it into being, that was part of it, that the earth had the capacity to bring forth vegetation. Is that difference between uh, hyper-supernaturalism and right. that you tried to just, yeah. Horton wants to talk about hyper-supernaturalism as almost an over... It's, it's like a weird blend of deism and um, basically that God is uninvolved unless he's directly involved. So unless God is breaking into reality and doing a miracle, he's hands-off. Where Horton wants to present, I think, a much more balanced view where God sometimes breaks in and does a miracle in a way that seems counterintuitive or doesn't work with the natural order of things. But most of the time, God is simply maintaining the universe. The Spirit is keeping things in play the way they're supposed to be, and that's just the way it is. He has a really insightful comment, and I've heard him say it in probably a dozen different contexts, is that we always talk about the miracle of birth. But in reality, birth is the least miraculous thing in the world. All of us have experienced it. There's not a single person in the world who's not experienced birth. So that is an example of something that we look at and we say, well, it's a totally natural thing, but God is at work in it providentially in that that's how he structured the universe to work. And he's the one making sure the universe still works that way. So when he talks about hyper supernaturalism, he's talking about this artificial distinction between God's sort of interventionary work and God's sort of ordinary maintenance. There are branches of the church, the the charismatic part of the church we talked about, that wants to sort of isolate the supernatural as a special, unique way that God works and kind of sometimes minimizes the providential way that God works. Does that make sense? Um, So we see on day three, the earth brings forth vegetation. We see on day four, God places individual lights, which we probably should understand as stars, But um, there is a lot of Hebrew literature that understood stars as angels. So some people would actually think that this is when the angels were created. I don't know. The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us where angels are created. I could be convinced if I saw the right kind of argument that this is when the angels were created was on day uh, four here. I don't know. Um, But there are a lot. So um, there's a passage in Joshua that talks about how the heavens need to stand still so that God can hear the prayers of the saints. And what's what's lying behind that is that the motion of the stars is related to the singing of the angels. And so the angels have to stand still and stop singing in order for God to hear the, the prayers of the saints. Or I don't suppose they say saints, but I don't know how much I wanna rely on that. Um, what was that? You can say that's I don't think that's a phrase that the Old Testament's using. Um, so there, there's some possibility that this was. This is an indication that this is when the angels are created. I don't want to make a firm enough statement one way or the other. I don't think the text is really explicit enough for us to know. But it's an interesting thought because that's a question that's come up: is well, the angels aren't eternal; they had to be created at some point. When were they created? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's reasonable to say here, but who knows? On day five, the water brings forth the sea creatures. The birds are created, but we don't really see how or when they're, or you know, what way they're created. It just says, "Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and then let them, let the birds fly across the earth or across the canopy, across the firmament." It doesn't say anything about the process. Um, they may have been created kind of by fiat. And then on day six, um, the earth brings forth land animals, including humans. So, in some ways, humans are associated with the land animals. They're made at the same time. When we get to Genesis 2, we see that they're actually made from a a similar process. Um, But they're unique that there's a direct intentionality behind the actual makeup of humans. So it's let the earth bring forth vegetation, but then you see almost a deliberation between the persons of the Trinity to say, but let us make man in our image. Um, I wouldn't... I don't want to read too much into that, let us make man in our image kind of language. Um, we should be cautious on pointing at that, going, look, Trinity in Genesis 1. Slow down. It's reasonable to think that, but there's also other possibilities. It could be kind of a royal, royal pronoun, like the queen might say, uh, we, sentence, we sentence such and such a person to death by beheading. It's kind of a way to add gravity or weight to a person, the royal we. Um, some people would theorize that it's God speaking to the angels I don't think that works because the angels, you know, we're not making we're not in the image of angels or anything like that um, I personally think it's reasonable to see the Trinity there but I wouldn't want to build my entire argument on that and they're specifically said to bear the image of God um, or the imago Dei which is just the, the technical Latin phrase uh, that means image of God anyone have questions so far? So here are a few general thoughts that stem out of this. We see that God creates immediately or directly by simple spoken fiat. God says, let there be, and there is. Uh, He utilizes nothing except his word and his spirit in this creation. But we also see God acting uh, immediately or uh, indirectly by means of the way he structured the universe. So that's that section that Horton points out. Nothing that God creates at this point is bad. All of it is declared good or very good as a whole. So a lot of times you see people will say, God creates the world and he declares everything good and then he creates humanity and he declares humanity very good. That's not, I don't think that's what the text is saying. I think what the text is saying that he creates everything including humans and he declares all of it very good. It's not that humans are special in being declared very good. It's that he steps back from all of creation that he's done and says, This is very good, when it's complete. That idea of complete, that idea of shalom, which is everything as it should be in this, that idea of completeness is important in the Hebrew mindset. So when we see God declares the world, the created order, very good, it's speaking of it as a whole. There's a clear literary structure to the document. So I don't know how anyone can read this and not and say there's not a literary structure. It is true that it doesn't fit kind of classical um, classical Hebrew poetry. It doesn't fit neatly in a different genre besides narrative. But it's not only does it have a clear literary structure, but the literary structure of Genesis one is very different than the literary structure of Genesis two. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to the slide on Genesis two. So it's not you can't simply say, well, this is clearly just a Hebrew poem. Uh, this isn't intended to be any sort of statement of history because it utilizes standard historical narrative kinds of um, conventions. But we also need to recognize it doesn't follow all of those the same way other parts of even Genesis do. Uh, we should not read this as a science textbook. So you'll hear that a lot when you talk about Genesis. Um, But you have to be careful because nobody really clarifies what that means. So just because it's not a science textbook or a history textbook, doesn't mean there's not scientific or historical realities that are represented or even presented. So just like you might pick up a copy of um, Gone with the Wind, it's not a history textbook, it's not a science textbook, but you can probably read it and get some true facts about the Civil War. Probably a similar dynamic going on here, I'm not want to say this, this is not fiction, Like I said, it's also not a mythology or an allegory. It doesn't fit neatly into any one genre. So we need to be cautious as we read it to not overdo it as a, this is literally scientifically, historically what happened, but we also need to be careful not to go, well, You know, the first day represents this, the second day represents that, and it's just a general idea. When we read Genesis 1 and the very first part of Genesis 2, These are the three points that the author is trying to communicate to us. God is the creator of all things, he is the sovereign of all things, and creation is good. Those are the three points. So if you read it and you're reading anything else out of there, uh, that's great, but that's not really what the author is intending to communicate. There's probably some intention to communicate some sort of historical value. What the extent of that is, uh, we, we are probably not in a position to know until we can ask the person who wrote it. Whether that's Moses or someone else, we won't get into details about authorship, but um, when we can finally ask, you know, Jesus, what's the deal with Genesis 1, he can probably explain it to us. He can definitely explain it to us. Isn't there the danger, though, that you start questioning? You say, well, it's not really, it's not false. It's not really true. Sure. So then, does that set a precedent for the way you look at Scripture? Like well, I choose to believe this part, and I'm gonna kind of let that go. Isn't that a danger? It it can be. Um, What we need to be aware of is that we should interpret books in the genre that they're written. Mm -hmm. So we don't look at um, we don't look at the Psalms and interpret them the same Mm -hmm. way we interpret the Epistles, and that's why it's important to recognize that the genre of this is very different than the other part, even other parts of Genesis. So, well, what you're saying is true if we want to do that in... So, for example, um, in the the Joshua narrative where the sun stands still, Mm -hmm. we don't have a real warrant to just say, well, everything around it is historical, but that sun standing still thing is probably just an allegory. We don't have a good reason to do that, Mm because it's right in the middle of a text that's clearly a historical text. Genesis 1, and in some ways, Genesis 1 through Genesis 11, um, all the way through up until you get to Abraham, In some ways, that chunk of text doesn't fit normal historical document kinds of Mm -hmm. stuff. So even though I I'm I fully affirm six day creation, I fully affirm a historical Adam and historical Eve and a historical garden, um, the flood. I'm I'm on board with all of that. We need to be cautious, and we'll we'll probably have some extra time. So I'll I'll kind of flesh that out a little bit when we get past creation. We can use the flood as kind of an example um, because I think. There's some good low-hanging fruit, to use kind of a corporate term, that we can get uh, when we understand the way that I think these texts were intended to be read. So I'm going to put a pin in that for now. Sure. But we need to be careful not to rely on these texts to do things they weren't intended to do. So there is an organization called Reasons to Believe. great organization. It's an apologetics organization. Uh, it's got people who have hard-hitting science credentials looking at biblical texts. And one of the things they do is they'll look at a passage in Isaiah that talks about the earth or the the universe unrolling like a scroll. And they'll go, that sure sounds a lot like the expansion of the universe according to the Big Bang model. I don't know. Really, that phrase is about a guy rolling out his, his canvas to set up his tent. I don't know that that really fits the Big Bang model. And even if it does, I don't really think that that's what the text is trying to tell us. It's not telling us about the cosmology of the universe. Um, so they do valuable work, they have good insights, but I don't think that's the right way to approach the text. And I think the same thing is here. So you might, you'll see people going, oh, look, uh, life starts in the oceans, and then it, you know, then it's, you've got some flying creatures, maybe some insects, and then you've got the beasts on the ground, and then, man, like, that's, that's the evolutionary tree right there, right, in Genesis 1. I I guess, maybe, I mean, God, God inspired the text, and if evolution, if evolution's true, which is a big if, and I don't think it's a good if, um, if evolution's true, then sure. Maybe God tossed that little nugget in there for us to find 7,000 years later or however long it is since this was written. I don't really think that's too plausible. Um, and I think we're, we're doing some violence to the text when we come at it that way. All right, any questions about Genesis 1 before we move on to Genesis 2? It just seems to me, given the way you just uh, explained things, that this is man's way to address what he doesn't understand. And he many relates you know. it to what he does know, and he could really distort it, Sure. because it's his one experience and he tries right. to explain it. Right. And we have to remember that um, this is the inspired Word of God and nothing that it is affirming at, in what it teaches is false. There's not teaching an error, it's not giving us, whatever it's doing, it's not giving us an inaccurate picture of anything. Now, whether or not we see the picture clearly is on us. Um, If I'm looking at an eye exam chart and it's blurry when I don't have my glasses on, there's nothing wrong with the chart, there's something wrong with my eyes. So we need to understand that putting the right pair of glasses on clarifies. We also need to, I think, kind of humbly acknowledge that we might not ever have the right pair of glasses on this side of eternity. I'm not able to transport myself back to the Bronze Age when this was written and understand the oral and cultural traditions that went into this text. That's just a fact of life. So on some level, we kind of have to say, you know what? This is what God says in his word. I don't exactly understand it. Um, There are some reasons we want to, I think we should interpret it more literal than figurative, mainly because in the New Testament, Jesus seems to think it's pretty literal, and he certainly is in a position to know. Uh, But Paul does as well, so even even a a non-hypostatic union, regular person knows, you know, treats it that way too. Alright, so we'll go ahead and go to Genesis 2. Um, It's important to remember that chapter and verse distinctions, um, or even spaces between words and letters, uh, didn't exist in the original text. So, Genesis 2, uh, 1 through 3, probably belongs in Genesis 1, in terms of how the structure is broken up. Um, Just in terms of the Literary structure of the document that three set those three verses don't fit in with the rest of chapter two Um, I don't know how it ended up in chapter two. I don't know the history of how that was done Um, And if it wasn't for the fact that we've been including it as part of Genesis 2 for however many hundreds of years It would probably make sense just to pop it back in chapter one, but that will never happen Um, So what we see is on the seventh day God rests so following that six-day cycle God enters the seventh day God rests. Obviously, this is not because God was tired or because he was worn out. It's indicating completion and wholeness. That God looked at his creation, he saw that it was very good, and recognized that he didn't need to do anything else. It was complete. Um, interestingly enough, day seven never ends. So, days one through six, we have there is evening and morning, which is why the Jewish evening starts at sunset and goes until sunset uh, the next day. Evening and morning, the first day. Evening and morning, day two. Evening morning, day three. There's no evening and morning cycle on day seven. So day seven, and the author of Hebrews picks right up on this, day seven is the eternal Sabbath rest that God is enjoying. And so in Hebrews, when he says, when there is no tomorrow, he talks about entering the seventh day, entering into the Lord's rest. That's what it's, he's talking about, is entering into that Sabbath rest when all the work is done and we can just rest because everything is the way it should be uh, this also mitigates against understanding genesis 1 through uh, 1 and 2 through 3 as strictly speaking literal 100 percent, exactly 24-hour days so the fact that day 7 never ends should tell us that the idea that this has to be only exactly 24-hour days probably something we should maybe step back a little bit from and reconsider. Because day seven is clearly not a 24-hour day if it never ended. This is also a reason why someone like uh, St. Augustine in the 400s, sometimes you hear it thrown out there that nobody before Darwin understood Genesis as anything except literal history. Simply not the case. Um, Augustine in the 400s basically said, well, no, God just created it all instantly. But he told us about... He told us about it in this sort of sequential way in order to help us understand the nature of the world. I think that's a plausible, plausible interpretation. I don't go that direction, but it could be. Once we get past Genesis 2.3 and get into 2.4, what we see is the structure of Genesis as a whole takes a very different turn. So there's a, a Hebrew phrase uh, called toledot, which just means generation. So we see in the very opening of this section it says for these are the generations of the heavens and the earth and then you see part of the story and then we next after that we see I want to say it's probably in uh, chapter 4 or maybe chapter 5 these are the generations of Adam and these are the generations of Noah so this these are the generations of such and such a person is an indicator that we're shifting from this part of the story to this part of the story now this means that Genesis 1 through 2-3 and Genesis 2 and following may have actually originally been two documents that because they're so related over time, they uh, became kind of unified as a single document. Um, It could be that, you know, if you want to affirm that Moses is the only author, that Moses wrote them separately and then at one point decided, you know what, it makes sense for us to include these together and think of them together. It could be that these were oral traditions and you always told this story after you told this story, so when they wrote it down, they just wrote it down as a, you know, as a sequence. Um, it could be that Moses just sat down, or whoever just sat down and wrote it that way. We, we don't know. But the structure of the text is different. Um, sometimes the introduction to a book is very different in structure and in style than the, um, than the rest of the book. But when we get from here and we go forward in Genesis, this total adult structure is very consistent throughout the whole book. Just to note a few, we see, um, we see that in Genesis 5-1, we see that these are the generations of Adam. In 6-9, these are the generations of Noah. 10-1, generations of Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, who are Noah's sons. eleven twenty seven we see the generations of Terah, who is Abram's father, um, Isaac, 37.2, Jacob, and then there's others. And then we even see these structures sort of go into, in part, into Exodus. Um, Interestingly enough, sometimes you'll hear that Matthew is the new Pentateuch. Scholars will talk about how Matthew seems to be intentionally structured to mirror the Pentateuch. The beginning of Matthew is these are the generations of Jesus Christ, son of David, and then it goes Um. through the genealogy. So it's very clear that Matthew is intentionally, the same way that John goes and says, in the beginning was the word, to make you think of Genesis 1, Matthew goes, these are the generations of Jesus Christ, son of David, da, 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 to make you think about Genesis 1 as well, or Genesis 5-1, um, which... In some ways, is actually another evidence that they may have uh, even been aware of the fact that they were two separate books or two separate documents in the first century, is that Matthew seems to look at Genesis 2 forward, and goes there. Uh, John seems to go to um, Genesis 1. I don't know. I'm not an Old Testament scholar, and and I'm sure that somebody could correct me if they wanted me to, Um, but it it seems logical to me. Uh, Genesis 2 appears to take place after the gatherings of the water, but prior to the earth bringing forth vegetation. We see that little note that this was before any shrubs of the field had sprung up from the ground before there was any rain. There's this mist watering the face of the earth. Um, So it seems to happen after the dry ground has appeared, but before there's any vegetation. God creates Adam, but he does not do so by fiat. We see in detail the process God uses. He first creates a body out of the dirt or the dust. Um, He gives it a spirit by breathing the spirit of life into it, and by... Taking a body and giving it a spirit, he makes it a soul. We'll talk about the composition of humans uh, here in a little while when we get done with the Genesis account. But that's the pattern we see in Genesis. We even see it in some senses with the animals, as we see a body is created, a spirit or a breath is given to that body, and that makes it a living creature or a soul. God then creates plant life after Adam, and he specifically makes a garden in a location called Eden. So we sometimes think that the garden is called Eden, but it's just a garden in Eden or a garden of the region of Eden. We're given some geographical details. I won't go into the specifics uh, regarding location, which indicates that, at least from the point of view of the author, the intention of the text is not mythological. Um, Mount Olympus was not a real place. So when we see an author talking about Mount Olympus in Greek, uh, poetry and mythology, we know that he's not trying to say this is where the gods really live, because everybody knew that Mount Olympus wasn't a place. And even if it, when it did become a place, you could climb to the top of it and see it was just a mountain. So by saying, giving us these descriptions of where it is, he's giving the author is giving you a map to where it is. Now there's all sorts of reasons why you know you couldn't just go there, why people wouldn't have just gone there, um, namely the flood would have eradicated it, but. We should be careful, though, that these descriptions are probably loose descriptions. Because especially in the ancient world, before they had Google Maps, the names and locations of places changed frequently. So you may think that that city over there is called such and such, but guess what? A new warlord just took it over and totally renamed it. And if you go there and call it that, you're going to get your head cut off. So the names of of, uh, cities changed. Sometimes you'd have... You know, a loose collection of, of houses and businesses and farms, and half of it would burn down, and they would go and build it on the other side, so the whole town changes by you know half a mile, because all of the houses on this side just got moved to the other side. So all of that is in flux. Uh, however, if we do take some of the descriptions, especially regarding the Tigris from the Euphrates, if we take some of those descriptions, the Garden of Eden is probably somewhere in the middle of the Gulf of Suez. They actually did some satellite uh, satellite imagery that showed where the actual headwaters of those rivers are and the other descriptions, and there's an, a region in the Gulf of Suez where it probably was located. Um, I don't think that if you get your scuba tank on you swim down there, you're going to find a tree and a flaming uh, sword, but who knows? I guess maybe the tree life could still be down there, but probably not. The man's purpose, and it, as I noted before, uh, Adam is a word that means, uh, means human, human person. It appears in the masculine here, which is why it gets translated as the man, and as of course to the human. Um, it doesn't become an, actually I'm not sure it ever becomes a name in the Old Testament. I don't think Adam ever actually gets a proper name in the Old Testament. Um, there are ways to determine whether something is a proper name, or whether it is just a noun. Um, I don't believe that Adam is ever a proper name in the Old Testament. Um, I'm almost sure it's not in this Genesis account, um, even after Genesis 3. But the man's purpose was twofold. He was told to work the garden and tend it, and he was told to keep it or guard it. That guarding is important because one of the primary ways that Adam fell was he failed to guard the the garden. He left the serpent in. Um, He was also given a task as well as a prohibition. So he had a positive command. His purpose was to work and guard the garden. And he also uh, was told not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's possible that the knowledge of good and evil is another mirrorism good and evil, meaning the knowledge of all things. Um, God indicates that it's not good for man to be about this task alone, these tasks alone. So he sets about, God creates all of the land animals and the birds and he brings them to the man in order to have them named. So it says he created the land animals and the birds out of the dust, similar to the way he created Adam. It doesn't appear that there's like breathing of the breath of life in here, but there are other places in the Old Testament where it says some animals have the breath of life. So sometimes people I think inaccurately associate that breath of life with the Imago Dei. Say that that God breathing life into Adam was the uniqueness, that was the Imago Dei. But there, like I said, there are other animals that are said to have the breath of life. A couple things that are important. Uh, God indicates that the animals will be named by Adam. Naming shows authority in, in the ancient Near East. So the fact, that, um, the fact that the animals are named by Adam shows that he is expected to take and have authority over them. It's interesting that the man doesn't name the sea creatures. I don't want to read into that too much, uh, but it may be related to that idea that um, the seas were a scary place. And whether or not that means that we're supposed to have dominion over the seas, I don't know. I don't don't want to speculate too much. But it's interesting to note as a feature of the text. Uh, And then God creates a partner out of the man for the man. It's important to remember that uh, there's a complementarity that happens between Adam and Eve. That's a result of her being created out of the man. So, you know, we've got the whole uh, the whole kind of same-sex marriage issue <coughs> redefining even what it means to be male and female. We don't have the liberty as Christians to embrace the idea that I can decide to be a woman if I want to. Even Not even counting medical procedures, just saying we're going to call me she now. I don't have the liberty to do that. Because God created man, he created woman out of man, and that that... I don't want to say imposes, that creates a predefined kind of relationship between men and women that is something built into the fabric of creation. Um, we probably won't talk much about complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Um, that would be an interesting discussion that we can have if we want to get lunch sometime and you know sit down and just uh, hash it out. It's probably better to understand the term rib as simply meaning side. Um, we, have this, uh, we have this picture of God taking one rib and then kind of expanding, uh, expanding that rib to be the woman. But it's probably more along the lines of taking a large portion of Adam away and creating the woman with that. You can maybe even almost think of like splitting Adam down the middle and creating a woman from the, the side of Adam. This recognizes the man recognizes the sameness of the woman and recognizes that the sameness of the woman is what makes her an appropriate mate and helper for him. But also, it's uh, rooted in this complementarity. So, a man and a woman complement each other biologically, emotionally, psychologically. All of those things fall into play. That doesn't mean that every man has to be a certain way and every woman has to be a certain way, that there are Necessarily, masculine roles and feminine roles. Um, I do most of the cooking in our household. I'm totally fine with that. Um, some people in the church would say that that's that's not a state I should be in. I should be having my wife cook and clean, and I should be doing other things outside of the house to earn money. Um, I don't I don't really see that as a viable interpretation. But there are some. All right. Does anyone have questions about Genesis two? Yes. The only question I had is: Is you talked about how the Bible never refers to Adam as a proper name? Correct. Um, even in Genesis five one, where it's going through the genealogies, I would have to check, but I don't believe so. I think it's still it's still um, this is the genealogy of the man. Um, I could be wrong though. I can, uh, I can email some of my Hebrew um, expert friends and double-check that. I'm, I'm like 99% certain that at least through Genesis 1-3, through 3, it's still just the man. Um, and I, I know the text doesn't indicate him being given a name. So, where like Eve is called the woman, up until, uh, up until Adam, I suppose he says, she shall be called woman, but that's more just a statement of her nature, of who she is and what, you know, what she is. But then in Genesis 3, after the fall, he says, he names her Eve. He actually, he names her Eve. Um, which I, I think is an interesting interesting feature that uh, Adam treats his wife more like the animals in that instance than he does like a partner. One of the first, I, I think, uh, one of the first effects of the fall was beyond just the, now they're naked and they realize that they're ashamed. Um, he takes authority over her and names her. and he's now asserted his authority the same way. he asserts his authority over the, he asserted his authority over the animals. Um, which, if I'm right, that's a really tragic part of the fall. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, some people would just disagree and say, no, though that's, that's an appropriate thing for him to have done. The Bible doesn't say one way or another, so it's speculation. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send some emails, and I'll, um, I'll let you know next week um, when, when the word Adam becomes a name. Because the, the other difficult thing with um, Hebrew is that Hebrew works on a series of root consonant clusters. So you have, we'll just write A for simplicity. Uh, if you had the, the root ADM, this is the root for ground. So when you have the land, it's Adama. But then Adam, who's taken from the ground, is called Adam. And that's man. So the word man and the word ground, in, some, in many ways, share a common root. Um, so it gets complicated because there's no vowels in the original. So is this, is this Adam or Adam? Is it Adama? Is it Adamim? There's, there's, it could be any of those. And we don't, we don't have a way to know from the original besides context. Um, but I'll I'll send that email this week. So I'm going to go through one more slide, and then we'll go to break, and I'm going to leave you with a little tension to ponder. If we interpret Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in a 100% straightforward, wooden, on-the-surface-of-the-text kind of way, we are left with contradictory texts. And here are three ways that I identified this afternoon when I was making this. I'm sure there are others that people could point out. In Genesis 1, male and female are created together on day 6 with the other land animals. But in Genesis 2, the male seems to be created on on day 3 before the plants, and the woman was created on day 6 after the animals. So that's one discrepancy. Genesis 1, uh, the birds are created on day 5 along with the sea creatures, and in Genesis 2, the birds are formed out of the earth along with the land animals. Uh, In Genesis 1, it appears to be explicit, uh, uh, humans are given explicit dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the livestock, the creeping things, which would generally include insects and any other animal that doesn't have legs, like a snake, um, and the earth itself. And in Genesis 2, it seems like uh, Adam has authority over the land animals and the birds, uh, indicated by the naming and over the plants indicated by the role as guard and worker of the guardian. Uh, As I said, there's kind of that absence of that authority over the the sea creatures. Um, He doesn't name those. So the primary way Genesis 2 indicates that authority is by naming, but he doesn't name them. So those are three tensions that I want to leave you with when we go to break. And don't worry, I will uh, give you the resolution in my estimation when we come back. But I want to let you kind of wrestle with that a little bit. What if I'm far from home